So um, we want to finish something that we started last year. Uh, last September, I began preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's a sermon that Jesus preached, and it's recorded in the book of Matthew. For 10 weeks, we worked our way through this incredible teaching of Jesus. Then at Thanksgiving, we took a break from this series, and uh, we, we did sermons connected to Thanksgiving and to Christmas. Uh, and the timing of this break, I thought, was quite divine uh, and beneficial for us all because as, that, as, that t- as we went through that 10-week series, right when we took a break, the next subject was to be when Jesus taught on fasting, but that was the Sunday before Thanksgiving. And I was like, you got to know how dangerous that could have been. I mean, because I know this, you know, sometimes you just kind of nod off or you don't pay attention or your your mind wanders here. And and if you misheard something during fasting, like I could just picture it It, during, at Thanksgiving, and they say, oh, honey, you want a piece of this, uh, your, your, your favorite pie? And you're like, no, thank you. Why not, honey? It's your favorite. I made it just for you. And you'd be like, I can't. I love Jesus. <laughs> you know, like, so, so God was merciful there to let us take a break. Um, so for three months, we've, we've taken a break and... Um, uh, since then, since Christmas was done, and God just kind of told me, he's like, you know what, don't, don't jump right back into the Sermon on the Mount. The church, the, 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 this body of believers needs some, needs some messages, needs some vision as to, as to who we are and where we're going, what we're doing. And so that's what we've been doing so far this year. But now the timing is right to get back and to finish, um, to finish what we started. Um, we're gonna, and so we're going we're gonna to spend the next several weeks uh, unpacking the rest of what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, now, to do this, though, on today, even though we're supposed to cover fasting, I really think we need to review. It's, it's only fitting. I mean, there are some, there's some new faces here. You weren't here for those 10 weeks from September to November. And then really, for the rest of us, like, we just need to be reminded. And that, that's a truth. We've been studying the book of Second Peter. Um, one of the great themes in Second Peter, Peter's writing to remind people of things that they already know. Um, we, need, we really need more reminders than we need new information. And so we're going to, uh, let's, let's kind of walk through. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hose today. Um, we're going to go really fast and not going to cover everything in depth. But if you want to catch the in-depth teaching, you can go back online and, and see the videos and hear the messages there. Uh, and I'd encourage you to do that because what Jesus teaches us is really really powerful. Now, one of the things that, one of the reasons people miss the deeper teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is that they read it, they read his teaching in sections. I mean, our, our English translations of the Bible, they, they make things easy for us, and they say, all right, here's Jesus teaching on salt and light, and here's Jesus teaching on adultery, and here's Jesus teaching on giving, and they section it out for us, and we just kind of do that. But, but his whole, it was a, it was a complete teaching, like, it wasn't Jesus just spitting out random thoughts of heavenly wisdom that is just a collection of his teachings. That's not what it was. This was, this was a sermon. Jesus um, was being very intentional in the order that he spoke things. And he's leading us to a, to a place that's actually quite powerful, um, quite significant. And so, um, 
so we need, to, we need to see it all together. We need to put it all together to really catch the deeper teachings. Um, Jesus was not random. Jesus was intentional. So to make sure that we don't miss the deeper, deeper teachings of Jesus, let's review. First thing that I would want to point out, that the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, it's recorded in the book of Matthew. It's the largest single teaching on record from Jesus. The, the Gospels, they're really, not a book, they're really not books of sermons. Um, Jesus preached many sermons in many places, but the Gospels really didn't record what he spoke in sermons. What, what is in the Gospels is mostly what Jesus did and how he reacted to things that came at him, how he responded to situations in life. They, they come with a test. Jesus, they, they, uh, what's the greatest commandment? We're like, I don't know what to answer that. Jesus gives an answer. That's what they recorded. It wasn't a sermon. Jesus, this woman's caught in adultery. What do we do? We're supposed to stone her. He writes in the ground. That's what they record. It wasn't a sermon. And this in and of itself, I think, gives us something that very valuable for us to carry with us. That, that, that who you are isn't really what you say. It's, it's, it's what you do. It's how you live. It's, it's how you respond in life. Jesus spoke many sermons, but what they remembered about him was who he was, how he lived, how he responded. Ultimately, what matters is, is your testimony, and your testimony is who you are. It's what you do. It's how you respond. It's, it's what comes out of you when life squeezes you. And the truth for all of us is life will always, at some point in time, puts you in a situation where you cannot control the spin, and, and when that happens, who you really are gets revealed. Your testimony is not so much what you say. Your testimony is who you are. They wrote down some of Jesus' sermons, but what impacted them the most was who Jesus was, how he lived, how he responded and reacted in life. Second thing that I would want to point out is that, that, that the way that Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount, he teaches it in a typical Hebrew pattern of teaching things. The Hebrew pattern of teaching is to tell the whole story right up front and then to come back and, and retell it in greater detail. Um, the Greek pattern of teaching, which is the pattern that, that most of the Western world follows, that's the way we think, is to go from point one to point two and point three and then to save the best for last. The Hebrew pattern was flip-flop. They're going to give you the best up front and then break it down um, later on. Jesus was a Jewish carpenter speaking to a Jewish audience. They would have been familiar with this style of teaching. He teaches them in the style that they're familiar to learning in. So what he does in the Sermon on the Mount is he gives you the entire thrust of the sermon Right up front in a portion of the, uh, of the scriptures that has become known, the Beatitudes. Then he comes back in the rest of chapters 5, 6, and 7. And he, he does kind of a sort of a long commentary on the rest of, the, of the, the sermon. So you can get the main point of Jesus' sermon here in the opening section, the section known as the Beatitudes. Now the reason it's called the Beatitudes, my... my my, my, my young adults, they've, they've bought in on this. Why do we call it the Beatitudes? Beatus. That's right. Beatus is the Latin word for blessed. Over and over again, 
Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. I got them out of order. Forgive me. Um, uh, he says blessed over and over again. In the Latin, all right, you'd read beatus, 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 all right? That's why they're known as the Beatitudes. Um, again, Jesus is not being random here. Well, go ahead and keep the Beatitudes up there, if you don't mind, Todd. Um, Jesus is not being random here. He's not tossing out a bunch of wisdom haphazardly and hoping that something's going to stick. No, being poor in spirit leads to mourning, which leads to becoming meek, which creates a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. When you read the Beatitudes as a series of disconnected blessings, then, then they just appear confusing. But when you read them in sequence, you discover that Jesus is laying out for you a path that leads to a deep and powerful relationship with God. In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not teaching you how to have a typical relationship with God. He's teaching you the steps that will lead you to a place with God that most people never see. A place where your purpose is certain, where your mind is thinking like God's, where you know his will and God uses you in a powerful way. And your life makes a meaningful difference. That's why Jesus says at the, at the conclusion here, he says, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. All right, uh, so much, Jesus says, that, like, if you walk through what we're teaching to the Beatitudes here, your life will become so meaningful, so impactful, that evil is going to take notice of you and is going to come against you. And that's why at the, the end of the, of the um, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs will be, is the kingdom of heaven. You know, most of us, in our modern way of thinking of blessed we, we interpret it as something that's convenient or, or just works out the way you want. Oh, I, the, the, the best parking space opened up for me at the Walmart. What a blessing. All right? Oh, I found an extra $5 in my pocket. What a blessing. It's like these are, these are nice, convenient happenings in life that, that suit your, your preferences. Listen, Blessed are those who are persecuted. That's not convenient for anybody. And what Jesus is getting at is that, like, that, that your life can become so empowered by, by the things of God that, that Satan's got to take notice of you. And he's going to set things up that's going to make life hard. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Congratulations. Your life is making a difference for good. Congratulations. Your life is meaningful. You're not just part of of the herd, you're a mover and a shaker. You are salt and light on this world, and a city on a hill cannot be hidden. You walk into a room, and you're just spilling out the things of God. Congratulations. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount Jesus is teaching us what it looks like and what it takes to have an empowered relationship with God. If all you want from God is typical, if all you want is the ordinary, then just keep doing things your way. But if you want significant, if you want meaning and purpose, if you want powerful, then you listen to Jesus. Look, crowds gathered around Jesus 
because he was not ordinary. He was not typical. When Jesus walked into the room, things changed. When Jesus prayed, things happened. Everybody instinctively knows how to talk to God in prayer. I mean, people recognize that they recognize what's typical. But when Jesus prayed, it was different. And people saw it. He's not typical. He's not ordinary. When he prays, things happen. They go up to him and they say, teacher, teach us to pray. We know how to talk to God, but teach us to pray like you pray. What Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a random collection of wisdom to help you to be a good and moral person. What he teaches is what it looks like and what it takes to have a relationship with God that's beyond typical, a relationship that's empowered. And if that appeals to you, then Jesus invites you to come and learn. So Jesus begins to go into greater detail about what a healthy relationship with God looks like. All right? And so he finishes up that opening section with the Beatitudes and the teaching on the salt and light. And the first thing that he comes to, Matthew 5, chapter, verse 17, he says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says, listen, if you really want a healthy relationship with God, then you need to understand that God's law, it's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's about the character of God. Look, if all you see when you look at the laws of God are a bunch of rules, then you're missing the point, Jesus tells us. The great God of the universe did not give us his law because he somehow enjoys watching human beings struggle to obey rules that they don't really understand. He gave us his law so that we can understand who he is and thus have a relationship with him. See, Jesus sees the law for what it is. It's the character of God. And because it's his character, it doesn't change. Not one, not, not one iota, not one dot's going to pass away from the law because it's God's character. He says, if you really want to have a healthy relationship with God, then you need to understand the law for what it truly is. If all you see are rules and regulations, you're going to miss the character of God. And your relationship with God will be shallow, it'll be superficial, and you're always going to miss the deeper teachings and the deeper connections. Then, for the rest of chapter 5, Jesus gives the deeper teaching in God's law. You've heard. It said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say forgive. See, the law is... That, 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 that retribution is going to be equal, but the character of God is one of forgiveness. All right? Then in chapter 6, Jesus continues what a healthy relationship with God looks like by teaching on what a healthy, a deep and healthy connection with God looks like. And he teaches on three things. Giving, prayer, and fasting. Now most of us, see giving prayer and fasting as separate and distinct issues. Jesus sees them as connected and related issues. And the reason is because the motive of your heart in all three issues, um, that's what matters the most. Are you giving to control or to receive some form of human validation? Are you praying because you want God's stuff Or are you praying because you want God? Are you fasting because you think that'll get you what you want? Or are you fasting because God is what you want? See, when you get down to the heart of the issue, giving, prayer, and fasting, 
They are related issues. Most of us, when we think of having a close relationship with God, it's not difficult to accept that prayer and fasting would be part of it. But it's interesting that Jesus begins with how you give. Because Jesus, Jesus doesn't understand giving prayer and fasting as separate and distinct issues. He sees the connection. And what you'll discover is that the manner in which a person gives is generally the same manner in which they pray. If, if in giving you seek to be in control, then most likely your prayers are going to be shallow attempts to control God. Attempts to get God to do what you want. If you're selfish with what you have, chances are you tend to be selfish with how you pray. It's interesting that in a sermon on what a healthy relationship with God looks like, Jesus talks about giving. Uh, Jesus never built a building. He never held a fundraiser. There's no record that, that he and his disciples worked on a yearly budget. But Jesus knows that how you give is a reflection of what your relationship with God is like. Are you the person that trusts God to provide? Are you the person, or are you the person that has to be in control? Are you the person that believes that what you have, it comes from God, or are you the person that assumes you own it? Ultimately, Jesus is teaching that giving should be an act of personal worship between you and God. Look, if, if I were going to teach a person, how do you have a, a, a close relationship with God? I would start with prayer. And, and then I would teach them about giving way on down the list. Jesus starts with the law, then he covers giving, then prayer is third on the list. Why? Because Jesus knows that if a person is a taker in life, rather than a giver, then their prayers are likely going to be about getting from God, rather than seeking what God wants. If, if a person is controlling in how they give, then that's the same way that they're going to be with God. Like, God, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm telling you this so that you'll do what I want you to do. Got a friend back in Longview. Has a hundred different excuses why church is not something that she's going to be a part of. But she tells me she prays every day. And when life gets difficult, she doesn't understand why God isn't just honoring her prayers. Every day. She takes a moment to tell God what she wants and what she thinks God should do. And why doesn't he do it? I mean, he's, she's spending a few minutes to tell him what to do. That ought to count. That's how most of us pray. So Jesus says, listen, if you can be a giver with what you have, how you pray is going is to flow out differently. That's when Jesus then teaches on prayer. And just like healthy giving is supposed to center around God, so does healthy prayer. Healthy prayer will first and foremost be about connecting with God. A asking for what you need or what you want should be secondary. So Jesus teaches us the model pray, prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. See, in the model prayer, Jesus teaches that you should begin with praise and adoration. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Make your prayers about seeking God, about knowing God, about honoring God. Hold your request for later. Then he says, pray to be about what God wants. That's what it means, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then, once you get your prayer centered around God, then make your request of God. And that's why he says, give us this day our daily bread. And what you'll discover in your prayer life, when your prayer life becomes healthy, when your prayers become God-centered rather than self-centered, what you ask for becomes radically different than you would ask otherwise. You'll also discover that when, as you get right with God, your heart's going to begin to desire to get right with others because God loves those others. And so Jesus says, what's next? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It, that'll become a natural overflow. As you get right with God, when it's healthy, you just, you're, you're, you're just not going to feel good about having things wrong with other people. And your forgiveness will be a step that you're willing to take. And then Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, healthy prayer will involve listening to God speak. And when he does request something of you, the temptation is, is to be like, ah, he didn't really say it, or I don't know if I really should follow through with it. And the temptation is not to follow through. And Jesus says to pray, lead us not into temptation. Ask God for the strength and the resolve to follow through with what he's shown you to do. So Jesus teaches us, now ask God for strength and courage. And then he says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The, the finish, the close of a healthy prayer is with adoration. You begin your prayers by saying, God, this is about you, not about me. You finish your prayer by saying, God, this is about you, not about me. Now, once you learn to pray on this deeper level, there is a partner to developing a deep relationship with God, and it's called fasting. That's what Jesus covers next. Matthew 6, verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is sees in secret will reward you. Now fasting, if you're not familiar, it is setting aside physical things for a time so that you can focus on God. And just like prayer is a discipline, fasting is a discipline that needs to be developed. It's just not natural. Um, healthy prayer is not natural. Selfishness is natural. Uh, sinful desires are natural. Um, but that healthy relationship with God, that takes discipline. Fasting is discipline. So if you've ever, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to fast for a while, but if you're like me, your first time was, was not good, got grumpy and short-tempered and, you know, it's... Don't quit. It, it's a discipline, right? And you, and you grow in it, just like you do all the valuable things of God. It's the discipline of setting aside your appetites to truly make God your top priority in life. You see, most people will say, God is number one in their life. 
because that's just easy to say. And so long as your pursuit of God lines up with the things that you're going to, to pursue anyway, you can maintain the notion that, that God's your number one love. But if you ever had to choose between God and the other things you love in life, how many of us would truly choose God? If you had to pick between God and your basic needs, such as food, is God still your top priority? If you had to pick between God and sleep, between God and family, between God and your favorite hobby, if you had to pick between God and your addictions, both the good addictions and the bad addictions, could you set those things aside? And fasting can be more than just going without food. Fasting can be anything you give up for a period of time that you have a tendency to be addicted to. You, you could fast from television. You could fast from your golf game. You can fast from shopping. It, it doesn't have to be food. Oh my gosh, I got men looking at their wives right now. The point of the fast is that for a time, you are setting aside something that is important to you. And you're basically saying, God, you matter more to me. You matter more to me than my ego. God, you matter, you matter more to me than my need for people's approval. God, you matter, matter more to me than my need for entertainment. God, you matter more to me than my need for nourishment. Jesus says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. You know, just like healthy giving and healthy prayer is God-centered, so too must fasting be God-centered. The purpose of the fast is to deepen your relationship with God. See, in Jesus' day, there were hypocrites. Remember the word hypocrite? comes from the Greek word hypokratos. It means actor. Jesus says, don't be an actor with God. Don't be just playing the part of being somebody who's spiritual. Have a really, a really, uh, I hate it when my brain loses its word, um, an authentic, deep connection with God. Don't just, don't just act on it. There were, there were people in Jesus' days, they weren't fasting in order to deepen their relationship with God. They were playing the part to impress other people. Jesus says they got their reward. And it's so shallow. They could have gone without eating in order to connect with the God of the universe. But instead, they starved themselves to gain sympathy. Sympathy from people whose names they didn't even know. They could have gained access to the libraries of heaven but instead, they only aimed for some passing sympathy. There is a heavenly Father who rewards those who seek Him. You could have aimed for His attention, but you settled for something much less. Congratulations, you got your reward, and it's worthless. What Jesus is teaching here, it's the same principle in three different applications. If you want a deep and powerful relationship with God, then when you give, make it about God. When you pray, make it about God. When you fast, make it about God. I had a friend who had, um, 
had been looking for a job for some time. And he had an interview coming up. And um, he's like, I, I really hope that I want this interview to go well. I want this job. I, I'm going to fast for it. I understand why he was fasting. But his approach was a lesser reason for fasting. You see, the highest motivation to fast is, is to set God as the number one priority in your life. But his approach was like saying, God, I want you to give me something. And I will give up food so you, that you will know how much I want this thing. And if I'm going to give up eating, then you better come through for me. You owe me what I want because I skipped some meals. See, fasting ought not to be for the purpose of getting what we want. Fasting ought to be for the purpose of making God our number one supreme desire and need. So once you get, once you make your giving God-centered, once you make your praying God-centered, and once you make fasting about God, you're going to find all sorts of other benefits that come with it. But they're secondary Look, most of us are driven by our lusts, our addictions, our appetites, and our body clock. You, you, and, and if you're the kind of person that's driven by these things, then, then what's going to happen is um, you're going to make mistakes because your pursuits are these addictions, appetites, and driven by your body clock. You say, what do you mean? Look, all of us, we've got things that we desire. All of us have things that we want things that we like, even things that we need. But when any of those things begin to dominate your thinking, your time, and your energy, it leads to a life that gets out of balance and you end up making mistakes. I mean, this is true of harmful addictions and healthy hobbies. I mean, most of us can see if a man desires alcohol to an excess, he'll do things like miss work, miss spending time with his wife and his children, uh, he'll even make mistakes while driving. We can see how doing that in excess becomes out of balance and unhealthy. But it's the same thing with true with even healthy hobbies. A golf game. A desire to go hunting. The desire to make money. Those things aren't bad. But if they, if they're, if they dominate your life in excess... It can become really toxic in a lot of places. I remember the first year of marriage. I, I, was, I enjoyed playing a particular video game. And it was one that took a while to play. And I'd sit there in front of this screen doing my thing. And my new wife would come up and look in there. and <sighs> All right. Kicking there, doing my thing, and an hour or so later she come back and check on me. Hmm. All right, how long are you gonna do that? I, I just want to finish this. I'm so glad that by the grace of God I I clued in. You see, I was spending so much time in front of a screen that I had a beautiful woman that wanted to spend time with me. I, I mean, I, I was spending my time with fake characters I couldn't touch. There was a person that I could actually touch. It's not that the video game was bad. 
But the fact that I was doing it was costing my relationship. It, was, it, was, it, was, it became bad. The same could be true, you know, to go out there and to spend the, di- spend the day on the lake. It's not bad. I mean, good is if you catch a fish too. It's not bad. But if you're doing that, you're not spending time with, with meaningful relationships like your wife or your children. That's not good. And so what you do in fasting, you say, you know what, this is something I love, but I'm going to put it aside. And if you can develop that discipline of putting those aside, then those things won't rule your life. Then when those important moments in life come come up, and they they come up, and your child has a need, your wife has a need, your your business has a need, you'll be like, you know what, I can put this away. I've put this away for God. I can put this away for you as well. There's a benefit to that. It's healthy. It's also healthy because it takes discipline. Listen, everything of great value in this life, it, it takes discipline. It takes effort. It just doesn't come naturally and, and happen, you know, that just happens at TV. Beverly Hillbillies. Once upon a time, how's that, how's the, the, the you know, all, next thing you know, oh, what was Jed's a millionaire? Yeah, he was out there shooting up some food and up from the ground came a bubbling crude. That just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Man, if, if I even get oil with a shotgun, man, I think we would all be rich. That just doesn't happen. That's TV, okay? No, the valuable things in life take discipline. You, you, and if you could be disciplined in one area of your life, you could be disciplined in another area of your life. If you could be disciplined in your relationship with God... You can be disciplined with your relationship with money and finances. If you could be disciplined in memorizing scripture, it's going to shape your brain to where you can memorize things. Listen, if you're in sales, you'll have a greater capacity to remember people's names. Then you, you come into the situation and you see them and they recognize you and, and you recognize them and you say, hey, yeah, I, I know your name and you're from so-and-so. And all of a sudden, instead of you trying to hard sell them, you get to soft sell them. Multiple benefits here. All comes out of discipline. But Jesus isn't just teaching us how to have a, a better life with our businesses. He's teaching us how to have a deeper, stronger connection with God. And that's his whole point on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to keep learning it. We're going to finish it up. And it will probably take us a little past um, uh, Easter. Um, but it's good. And I'm excited to get back into it. And, um, and next week, I'm going to let Lee... Give a, a different little spin on some same scriptures. And I may come back over the top of you, not because you're going to do a bad job, but because the scriptures are just like, they're just too fantastic. Like, I'm going to be greedy here. I, gotta, I want to preach that, you know. And I already know, he's, he's got a different point to make, and it's a good point. Um, and that's just how rich and alive God's word is for us. But let me ask you this as we close. Are there things in your life currently that may be dominating your time, your thoughts, your energies beyond what is really good? I mean, they might be things that are easily recognizable as bad. Maybe there's a drug addiction that is consuming you. And in order to feed that addiction, you're having to do things 
that are not healthy. Maybe it's not something that's readily bad. Maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's reading. Maybe it's a television show. Maybe it's something that's kind of seemingly inconsequential. Like the latest game app on your phone. It might be something that for your sake and for the sake of a deepening relationship with God that you say, you know what God, for a time, I'm going to put that aside. I want you to truly be number one in my life. God, you give good things, and it happens to us all. We get so appreciative and enamored by those good things that they kind of become, they push Jesus out of that number one position. So you might just want to sit there and say, God, for your sake, I'm going to put this good thing aside. Jesus fasted for 40 days. You don't have to go 40 days. There's no real prescription for the length of time or what it has to be. It can really be open-ended. But it's got to be, if you want it to be right, it's got to be for your relationship with God. It's got to be God-centered. Father God, thank you that you are such a good and gracious and giving God. You give us more than we deserve. You give us good things. And Father, in our, in our own fallenness, it's happened to me, I know it's happened to others. We just get to loving your gift so much that it starts to push its way into where you belong. And we start to love it more than you. God, I thank you for sleep. But may may we not love sleep more than we love you. God, I thank you for great food. But may we not love it more than you. God, I thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to work, to have purpose and adventure. But may the jobs that you give to us not become more important than you. God, I thank you for my children. Precious lives. But even they, Father, may they not be more important than you. God, I just pray over your people today that in the midst of so many good things in this world that you've given to us, God, that you would awaken them to anything that's just becoming a little bit out of balance. And God, if there's anyone that has something that is truly destructive in their life right now, that you give them strength and encourage, encourage to, to set it aside 
to even seek help that it might not rule them, that only you would rule our lives. Father God, help us to grow, to be a people that puts you first and center in all things. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.